Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey Pediocast. With your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey Pediocast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Jack Hahn. Jack, what's going on, man? Great to be back, Tim. Great to be back. I'm excited. Uh, yeah, we, we, we haven't done it in a while. I think we did it a couple months ago, but I feel like these shows are always, uh, I mean, you know, we, we use your expertise in terms of video and sort of uh, outside the box ideas, but people always seem to enjoy the shows when I have you on. So I had to get you back on during this like little lull between round one and round two. Yeah, and, and we're here to talk about the abs. Is that right? Well, we are. So let me, let me, let me tee us up here uh, for anyone that's listening. They're like, why are these guys going to be doing 40 to 45 minutes on the abs or however long the show goes? And first off, um, when I was doing my round one previews with Ryan Lambert, we didn't get to talk about the West Division because the scheduling, when we recorded, we still didn't know who the abs were going to play and how those uh, West matchups were going to shake out. So I promised people that we would talk more about them in the future. Uh, they were so impressive in round one, which was one of my biggest takeaways from watching round one when they just steamrolled the blues and they've been done for like a week now or whatever. So I've had plenty of time to think about them and write about them. And so while I was watching them and writing them for this piece that I did for EP ringside, I messaged you and I was like, all right, Jack, like I need you to watch some abs tape because we need to do a full podcast discussing what they're doing uh, how they're so effective, what's going on here, because I find them so interesting. And so the, re- the reason why I wanted to do this and why I'm so interested in them is because I really want to learn from them because it seems like they've been the gold standard this year in terms of both how you watch them in terms of the eye test, but also uh, analytically, their, their numbers are just absolutely ludicrous. Yeah, and for me, it's, it, it was really interesting because uh, you know, Eric Parnas has been been with the Avs for I would say almost five years now, if if I'm if I'm correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I went to visit him in December 2016, they were in the middle of possibly the worst season in franchise history. Like I get there and basically, you know, I watch him practice, I watch him play against the Florida Panthers, and nothing could go right. 
whatsoever. Like McKinnon, I think he had about 55 points in, in 75 games, which is um, pretty good, but, you know, not... Um, yeah, he shot like 7% even, that year. I think. Yeah, like, like he, he, was, he was kind of fighting it. Uh, Matt Deshane was melting down. He wanted out. Uh, their number one D-man was Tyson Barry, who, as we found out subsequently, is really a player with a lot of warts and, and a player you have to use a certain way. As um, you're wearing a Toronto, is that a Toronto Maple Leafs or a Toronto Yeah, Marley's yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's a, it's the Leafs uh, development group, and um, they were trotting out guys like Joel Colborn, uh, Fedor Tutin scored in that in the game I was at, Patrick Wirkosh, uh, who who had kind of been an analytics darling, but he, he got kind of pretty severely exposed there. Eric Jelena, who who had some pretty good Corsi numbers and really sheltered usage in New Jersey. Uh, got really exposed over it. Like that was a team four and a half years ago that could do nothing right. And now all of a sudden they've kind of turned over the entire roster except for maybe four or five guys. And it seems like they can do nothing wrong. And, and for me, that whole process is fascinating. Well, we'll talk about it more later on the, on the team building side of things and coaching and we'll loop all of that in. Uh, you, you, you hook, line, and sinker at all the listeners of the PDO guest when you mentioned Eric Shellina and Patrick Weircock. I mean, that's, that's, that's uh, two throwback names right there. I love it. Um, yeah, so when I watch them, the thing that I think about is what can we learn from them? Like, how do they get so dominant? Because whenever you're seeing stuff like this, I'm always sort of thinking ahead in terms of what's applicable or replicable here for others. And a lot of it obviously keeps coming back to they have a lot of awesome players. Like they have McKinnon, Randon, and Landeskog, Makar, Taves, Gerard, so on and so forth. And very few teams, if any, are blessed with that type of personnel. And so no matter how smart of a coach or a front office you have, you can optimize your playing style all you want. But at the end of the day, if you don't have the personnel, it's only going to take you so far. So I, I completely acknowledge that side of things. But the reason why I do think there is something here for us to mine for future use and to really discuss is because they clearly made tweaks to their system even over this past year that led to different results, right? Like their underlying numbers just completely changed from even last season when they were still winning a bunch of games and putting up high scoring totals and looking awesome. But they've clearly optimized their personnel in some way, particularly defensively, where they're just getting different results than they were last season. So I think part of that is just their their core players getting better. Like McKinnon is, he's kind of like right in his prime. But I think every offseason he's kind of you know doing the Crosby or the the Barzell thing, which he's he's learning from other players and picking stuff up and working on stuff. So he's getting better. Uh, you know, Landis Cog is he's kind of in his late peak. He's still a really good player. Uh, Ranton is getting better, and, and obviously on D they went and got uh, Devon Taves, who's been a big addition. Uh, Kale McCarr is getting better. Sam Gerrard is getting better. So it's almost like kind of organically their best players are still kind of, you know, in that positive range of their age curves where they're going to get better uh, just kind of by, by doing their thing. Right. But also from a tactics point of view, for, for me, I, you know, I, I don't have a lot of insight on how they actually produce those results because I, I'm not in on the meetings. I don't know what, what the kind of that, the the uh, the internal kind of uh, plan is right, but when I when I look at the way that they play, and you know, I obviously I was in Toronto. Uh, I watch a lot of Tampa, and it, it's almost like Colorado's kind of leapfrog both of those teams in terms of how they create off the rush. 
because they weren't afraid to do some things a little bit differently defensively. Right. Which is, which is to say it's, it's much more aggressive, right? That's what I've kind of noticed. Yeah. And, and, and Tampa, they do play quite aggressively, but, but it's almost like, um, you know, one of the basic tenets of hockey coaching is as a coach, you want your players to play stop and start in the D zone because that allows them to, you know, stay tired to their checks to react to, you know, whether it's a shot or rebound, a puck battle, um, you want them to hold their spots essentially. Whereas if you watch Colorado play, um, they never put it in park or neutral or even first gear. Like everybody's kind of swarming and they're always in movement, which means as soon as they're able to force a turnover, you go from second gear to third to fourth and, and now you're off the races. Whereas, um, you know, if I think back to the Leafs um, when I was there, a lot of um, what we try to do is the same as Colorado. We try to play quickly with possession, use the change of sides, uh, stretch the ice out, um, you know, make skill plays. But the one thing ultimately I think that held us back was in the D zone, we were very stop and start, which meant that it was difficult then for us to get going and for, for us to really create kind of those high end, like breakaway threats or two on one or get the weak side D moving very quickly. Like it just happened a little bit slower. It's almost like if you go to a Costco and you know, you're buying a bunch of stuff, your shopping cart's really heavy if you give that cart a little bit of a push to get it going, then it's really, it's much easier to, to, to kind of have a go where you want to go afterwards. Right. Whereas if you're pushing that cart from a standstill, you, you got way more resistance. That, that's kind of like w- what it is. Well, and so we, we tend to kind of just throw out the term of like, you know, it, it's the old saying, but the, the best defense is a good offense because it implies that if you have the puck and you're further away from your net, the, you're less likely to get scored on. Right. But I do think there is a bit of a balance there in terms of defining what that actually means, because if, especially in the modern game, the best offense is for the most part a five on five, a rush offense, because we know you're more likely to score if you're creating these transition opportunities where you have a three on two or a two on one, or, or you're, you're kind of creating before the opposing defense can get set under defensive structure. But we also know that if you get into playing that style of hockey, that opens you up to giving up more opportunities the other way in terms of conceding counterattacks, right? And so in, in that sense, maybe the best offense or the best defense isn't a good offense because then all of a sudden you're getting into more of a track meet, high tempo, you're, you're, you're creating a lot, but you're also giving up a lot the other way. And sometimes we see that with these young, exciting teams where there's a lot of give and take. For the Colorado Avalanche, I'm very curious and really sort of pressing down on how they've been able to not only improve their offense while also significantly improving all of their defensive metrics. I think we should say contextually, it helps that last year they were playing in a pretty competitive central division. And this year they played where they just got the feast on these California teams in Arizona, but St. Louis is generally a pretty good team and they just completely dismantled them in those four games, outscoring them 20 to seven and, and keeping up all of those 60 plus percent shot metrics and chance metrics and everything. So that's what I'm curious about here. Like how do we, sort of tackle that idea of the combination of defense and offense and creating more while giving up less. So um, if, if we accept that 
Colorado and Flor- Florida play a similar type of game, which I think they do. They're, they're both very, uh, very rush oriented. They, they, they use a whole ice. Uh, they, they like to possess the puck. And, and actually, you know, this is where just having better bl- uh, players and especially better defensemen come in because, you know, Florida was able to have, you know, surprisingly good results this season with, with a, a D group that's maybe not uh, super high end, uh, especially after uh, Eggblad went down. And then you see in the playoffs, they were still able to drive play against Tampa, but once or twice or three times a game, they would just get burned and, and that was it, right? They were out in six. Right. Whereas Colorado playing a very similar style, uh, they beat the Blues in four simply because their Ds are able to skate the whole ice, to make those reads, and, and you know to su- to successfully move the puck and um, you know put the puck in in St. Louis's net instead of having it come back in their face. Well, yeah, I think the goaltending certainly lends itself to that as well. I think we often just sort of disrespect Philip Grubauer a little bit because he plays behind this great team and because he got injured last postseason. But the reality is he's a pretty good goalie, and I think that lack of stability, you saw it in that Florida series where every time they did have a bit of a breakdown, it was in the back of their net. Whereas Andre Vasilevsky was bailing out uh, Tampa Bay, even though Florida was creating more high danger looks overall. Yeah. Um, I mean, we'll, we'll see how, how good Spencer Knight is. Maybe Florida's found a solution there, but no, he was um, good. I mean, when he got the chance, but unfortunately it was a bit too late. Yeah. And, and once again, you know, w- when you do have uh, 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 Devon Taves or Kale McCarr or, uh, you know, Sam Gerrard or Ryan Graves or Bowen Byron, like those players, like they're, they're fast enough to take a chance and then get back. Whereas a lot of Florida's these couldn't do that. Like Mackenzie Weger, like he, he's such a smart and skilled player, but if he pinches and misses, like that's an automatic rush. Uh, if, if Rakos Gudas pinches and misses, like that's an automatic reps. Like, like half the guys on their uh, on Florida's decor, you know, like they, they have one bullet in the chamber, and and if they fire it, and you know, they 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 don't put the beast down, then it's over. I mean, you probably um, dealt with this a lot uh, as a coach in terms of just trying to sort of think about hockey as more of a, a fluid sort of free flowing sport and kind of having a motion offense. That's what I see with this abs team where obviously if you have a kill McCarr sprinting up the ice with the puck and carrying it himself deep in the zone, he's good enough of a skater to eventually get back into the play. And especially if he's doing, you know, the thing where he's funneling back up the middle of the ice and optimizing his route, he can get back defensively, but it kind of takes a team effort of being like, okay, well now someone needs to cover his spot and kind of hang back a bit. And what that led to in that blue series was, you know, part of it is a fluke because scoring from the point is difficult, but all of a sudden you're getting these like Nathan McKinnon shots from the point during five on five, where you typically wouldn't expect him to be because he's all of a sudden sort of cycling through to that open area of the ice. And that's what Tampa Bay does a lot. Well, right. Like they don't have a net front guy. They're constantly moving around, trying to sort of change the geometry of the offensive zone. And that's what I feel like when I watch Colorado, it's like, they're not so rigid in their structure of being like, okay, the two defensemen need to be at the points. The, the forwards need to be in certain areas of the ice and the other team knows where they're going to be because that makes you so much easier to, to defend against. Yeah. And for, for me, what, one thing I always found important was not to have fours and D's be apart too much, uh, whether it, it's, you know, in meetings or in practice drills or 
you know, if, if we think back to the, the Russian five or, you know, before that, um, the Soviet national team with the Larionov line with Fatisov and Kazatanov, like those guys were together all the time and they talked about hockey and they trained together and, um, you know, they were really a unit. So the fours and the Ds on, on that unit, they were on the same page all the time. So now, um, whether it's Makar or Gerard or, or Taves, if they make an aggressive read, well, McKinnon sees that and he knows, okay, well, I'm going to go back and play defense for a little bit, but within five seconds, like something good is going to happen and I can skate down on the puck. So um, there, there's not that, first of all, there, there is a high level of trust, but second, you know, nobody's pressing. It's just the, the plays there for the Ds to, to pinch or to attack. And then recognize employees with custom ink, show customer appreciation with custom ink, outfit your teams with custom ink. Easily add your logo to your favorite products and brands at customink.com. Make Custom Ink your custom gear partner with great customer service, quality products, and all-in pricing, along with personalized help when you need it and an easy-to-use website when you don't. All backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Do it all today at customink.com. The Fords, they, they just kind of reroute, they, they backfill, and then they know that within a few seconds, they're going to get a look um, um, of their own. Whereas, you know, if you try to introduce this maybe with other teams, especially kids, let's say, uh, the D's are going to go in and then the forwards, either they're not going to trust their teammates or maybe they're going to they're get greedy and they're going to go in too. And that's really where you, you have these really huge breakdowns. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about the Leafs 2-0 last night that, that they gave Montreal. And that's kind of what, what happened because Bogosian went way in. He ended up in the right corner. And then, you know, Gauchenia kind of rushed to play to the middle. And, and that's, that's all it takes, basically. Well, you know, sticking with this defensive theme, I think this might be sort of one of those things where you say it and it, and it on the surface sounds so obvious that it's kind of stupid. But I do think there's some merit to it in this case where I, I honestly think part of why Colorado's defensive metrics are as good as they are is because they just spend such a low amount of time in a defensive zone. Like, and, and that the reason why I bring that up as interesting to me is because some of these more traditionally dominant defensive teams that we've seen over the past couple of years, whether it's the Barry Trotz Islanders or uh, the Dallas Stars over the past couple of years on, on route to the Stanley Cup final, the reason why they're so good defensively is because they basically turn the, that middle of the ice, whether it's the slot or the area in front of their net into a no-fly zone. Like they're just, if you look at their heat maps, they're not giving up any looks from there they're strategically pushing the other team to the outside and being like, we're going to concede shots from two or three areas on the ice. And our goalie knows where it's coming from. And it's going to make it much easier for them to stop those pucks because they're prepared for them for the abs. They're essentially just not like they're, they're not spending any of that time in the defensive zone. It's not like they're giving the other team looks from far out. They're just being like, okay, we're going to be really aggressive in the neutral zone. And at the blue line, we're going to force you to dump it in. And then we're going to use our talent to go back, retrieve it, and instantly go back attacking downhill in terms of like a fast break transition opportunity. And that's what's been remarkable to watch for me. It's, it's that they've been able to have that plan and then actually execute it because I do think that form of defending is, is pretty rare. Yeah, and, and if you watch you know, most good teams through hockey history, the way that they defend is they want you to stop. Whereas once again, as I mentioned before, Colorado, their, their strategy is they want to match your speed. They want to force a turnover and then they want to, uh, 
you know, start with a speed differential on you. So they're in third gear, you're in second and you're playing catch up. So, so it's a bit of a different mindset. And once again, um, basically every single coach I've worked with over the years, they were more of the mind of, you know, defending means you stop, you hit your spot, you get into a structure and then you wait for the other team to maybe shoot into a shin pad or present the puck so you can poke it away or, you know, cycle and then jump on that. But um, it, it's always from a static position. Whereas if you watch Colorado, um, maybe it kind of happened organically, but it, if you watch them play now, they're not really interested in stopping. They, they want to be moving slightly quicker than you, close, attach, and then force a turnover. There's no so, stopping. I'm, I'm going to give you some uh, quick stats here for a second because I was interested in it. So I tracked that series. And at five on five in those four games, the Avalanche defensemen were targeted for the zone entries by Blues attackers 140 times. They gave up just 52 carries and they broke up 24 of them. Uh, in comparison, the Blues defense gave up 102 carries to Avalanche forwards and, or sorry, they gave up 102 carries on 166 attempts. So it was just, it was night and day. Now, the issue with that is the Blues, even on their best day, want to get the puck deep and basically just cycle and forecheck and kind of keep you pinned down in defensive zone. And that was a horrible matchup against this abs team that basically doesn't let you do that and has a defenseman that can just retrieve it and break it out. I'm really curious to see what that would look like and whether that aggression would continue against a dominant puck carrying team that could sort of match them in terms of that ability. Because, you know, I remember you and I talked about this in our, in when we were discussing how Florida Tampa Bay would shake up before that series started and a big thing that I wanted to see was Florida plays this aggressive style. Would they be able to continue that even if they got burned by Tampa Bay skill a little bit? And I think they did. It just didn't wind up working out because they didn't have the firepower to match them. Um, but for Colorado, I'd be very curious to see whether that sort of aggression in terms of forcing dump-ins and, and, and dislodging pucks from opposing puck carriers would continue against one of the best four or five teams that can carry the puck all the time through the neutral zone. So I'm not sure when they're going to match up against a team like that, but it'd be really fascinating to see what those numbers look like. Yeah. Um, like, like I'm thinking more of whether they play Minnesota or Vegas and neither of those two teams, you know, are maybe as good at carrying the puck as, as you described. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so it, it probably wouldn't hinge on something else at least for, for the next round. But um you know, well, I'm maybe talking they, about if they if they play Tampa Bay or Carolina or you know Toronto or who have you. We're recording this on like a Friday morning, so we don't we don't yeah. even know who they're playing in round two. That's why we're not talking about specific matchups. But I just thought it was a interesting highlight. So okay, so when they do get the puck, though, and, and this is something I brought up to you as well when we were watching some of their tape, that neutral zone regroup that they do, I love it so much, and and I, I highly encourage people when they're watching Avs games coming up here key in on that because it sounds so obvious, but so few teams do it. I'm not sure why. I wonder how much of it is just like you kind of, you don't, I, I don't know. I think it's just maybe the conservative nature of the sport, but it seems like it's something that everyone should be doing where they have these long offensive zone shifts. As soon as the other team gets the puck, especially in like the second period with a long change or maybe late in the game when, when the legs start feeling a bit heavy, they just want to dump the puck out and go for a quick line change because they're super tired. And instead of letting them do so, the Avalanche just pick up the puck and instantly, whether it's Taves or Gerard or Makar, one of them is just sprinting full speed up the ice and converting it into a rush opportunity immediately. And I love seeing that because they're just at least like two to four times a game, just getting 
easy rush opportunities that they otherwise wouldn't if they weren't as sort of purposeful with their attack. So the the thing about that, I think it's, it, it's a little bit counterintuitive because when you watch them, it looks like they're going very fast. So let's say, you know, there's one clip that you show me where I think it was Makar with Devon Taves yep. and the bench was on Makar's side on, on the right side of the ice. And then, um, so they come out, they regroup, the other team changes, and then Makar goes D to D to Taves. And instead of either dumping it in or stretching it to the forward, Taves just took off and, and made the entry himself. Right? And, yep. and they got a good shift out of that because, because uh, it was a D-man that made the entry while the three forwards are free to find lanes and find space and, and get available, right? And, and you, we see this and we, and we think, okay, well, Colorado's playing really fast and, and they're really they're being really aggressive, but actually it's almost like as a D man in that spot, you got to slow it down mentally because your first instinct on most teams is I want to get to the red line, rim it in, or I want to shoot it out of one of my forwards stick plays so we can tip it in and then we can go on the four check. So actually you got to like slow down for like a quarter of a second. You got to take a breath and then carry the puck. And a lot of players don't have that poise and, Honestly, most NHL coaches don't try to instill that kind of poise either. It's just like, you know, pound it, get it in. Uh, maybe you come for a change. Um, let's, let's have the forwards chase the puck and then try to hem, hem the other team in that way. Well, it's funny. Like, I, I think of that as, as kind of a, like a snowball effect that the best teams in the league uh, take advantage of. I guess that is in a way that's trying to quantify the concept of momentum that we think about in games where it's like, Oh, this team has had three or four good shifts in a row. The reason why that's happening in cases like this is because the fresh players coming on the ice for the blues in this specific instance are desperately scrambling into the play to try and defend this rush that the abs have. So they're not actually starting their shift from a neutral position or even an advantageous one. They're already having to defend and chase the puck as opposed to, if they're the players that had come off before them had left them with the puck in a better situation where they were able to sort of spend the first 10 seconds of the shift settling in and then doing something creative. Instead, they're all, they're like, you, you see them. I think it's like Tori Krug in that instance, I'm telling you about where they're like, he's like desperately sprinting to try and cover Taves as he jumps off the bench. And that's obviously a very crappy situation to be in. And if the play keeps going and you have three, four or five shifts in a row like that, all of a sudden that's sort of the, the concept of momentum. Yeah, and and you know to to that example, if Tory Krug is flexing out to cover Devon Taves, who's covering the next ass forward that that's filling in? Nobody. Right. Like right. the, the ass forward is coming in down the gut with a huge speed differential, and if there's a rebound or if there's some kind of a second chance, like it's going to be tough for the Blues. So so the, the, this idea of momentum, I think, is really uh, relevant because it's starting to be something that both uh, stats people and uh, coaches are starting to agree on. Uh, so this year, Michael Blake McCurdy kind of he, he kind of contradicted his, himself because uh, a few years ago he said, "Well, this stuff doesn't matter," and then he kind of went back and used another methodology, and he found out that yes, well, it actually, it does matter a little bit. Um, and then he, he he was able to do a presentation on how much that mattered, which uh, which is you know it, it's not life changing, but it does make a difference. Uh, and, and this is something that coaches have been talking about for years is the idea of hemming the other team in, uh, you know, pushing the play down ice, 
maybe us even getting an offensive zone change and then uh, them being tired. Yeah, but mo- what most other coaches do when they say that is they get their players to just dump the puck in and then it's like, oh, let's get it deep and let's hand them in that way. And this is an entirely different, this is actually a much more functional way of doing so because you're creating while keeping the other po- uh, team chasing the puck as opposed to just dumping it in and going for a change and then getting fresh skaters out there to forecheck and trying to keep it going that way. Yeah, and I, I think the idea has always been there, but maybe just the, the specific implementation of it, like we're understanding it better than we used to. Well, I guess this sort of is a good uh, set transition point for us to talk about Jared Bednar and sort of the impact of the coach here, because clearly they're, ble- they're blessed with immense personnel, right? Like they have a lot of great players. And I think for the most part, a lot of people could just be like, yeah, well, we have really good players that just let them do their thing. I do think in this case, though, there is an element of uh, sort of maybe it's just getting out of the way and just letting your best players, like enabling them and empowering them to play this brand of hockey as opposed to trying to kind of dumb it down and 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 play a more conservative style because you feel like that's going to be more successful come postseason time. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've, I've never had the, the benefit of sitting in on their meetings, obviously, and really getting to know what their processes are. But I've always found it really impressive how Colorado's been able to, first of all, implement the style of play, but second, do it really well uh, without maybe as much human resource as Toronto has. You know, we have, you know, we had way more skills development people. We have more analysts. Um, you know, our coaching staff was, was slightly bigger. Um, whereas Colorado, like they, they just they had fewer people in the room. And, but they were still able to, I would even say, you know, they, they did a better job imp- implementing this than, than, than we did when, when I was in Toronto. And I, I've always found that really impressive. I mean, don't you think, do you think there's a certain element of it makes it, once you have that environment set up or, or that structure, it makes it easier to uh, plug in young players because you're essentially just asking them to play probably the way they played coming up and sort of just play to their skills as opposed to having this super rigid structure where all of a sudden you're asking a 21 year old with limited experience to sort of do stuff that their game has, isn't even suited to. Like it feels like for whatever reason they've been able to, you know, plug in guys, like whether it's a Connor Timmons or an Alex Newhook into the lineup, obviously very talented young players, but there's a lot of teams that are very reluctant to do so, especially this time of year, because they feel like they need more sort of experience or players who have been there before. And the Avalanche have those players, obviously, but they seem very comfortable with trusting their young, talented players to do so as well. And, and I kind of wonder how much of it is related to the team's history or, or their their upbringing, so to speak, because they're a relatively young franchise, right? They've been around since uh, 95, 96, I believe. Um, and, you know, they, they've been a winning team, but they, they don't really have a ton of, I would say, baggage, right? Like there, there, there wasn't a, a ton of uh, kind of crusty, like traditionalist voices saying we got to do this a certain way that maybe in cities like Montreal or Toronto or Edmonton or, or even like Boston or New York, like may, maybe it's, it's more entrenched in those other markets. Whereas like I watch Colorado play and four and a half years ago, it seems like they couldn't do anything, but, over time, they just kind of found their way, and now they they just play freely, which I don't think is is a given. Like you watch Colorado and they play free, you watch Carolina and they 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 play free, you watch Florida and they they play free, and um, 
I, I don't know if, if it's the fact that they're in a, in a less traditional market, but uh, it just seems to me like there's less baggage when they play hockey, which I don't know, may, which may or may not be a thing. I don't know. I, don't, I mean, that's a tough thing to quantify. I think for me, like a much easier thing to trace back is it seems like there is big time organizational buy-in in terms of the players they're targeting, whether it is through the draft or, or free agency or trades and then how they're actually being used. Like we know, like they're obviously a team that's invested pretty heavily in analytics and, and it runs through the organization, but you can sort of see that in action, right? Where like they're bringing in they're targeting specific players that can come in and play the way that they would ideally love them, like them to play. And it's working out. And so that's why I think they're actually for a, for an unbiased observer, like their success is a good thing because not only are they really fun to watch from like an entertainment product perspective, but from a team building perspective, there's a lot to like in terms of how patiently and shrewdly they put this group together, obviously with some luck along the way. Um, but if that's something that other teams all of a sudden aspire to and try to model themselves after, like that's ultimately a net positive for the NHL, I think. Yeah. And like, if you, you, you go up and down the lineup, they're, they're just good at hockey. Like there's not a ton of like histrionics or anything like that. Like they're not trying to overcomplicate. Like you, you see kind of what, what their, their mindset is when they look for players with speed or, or skill or, or hockey sense. But, uh, you know, it's, it's like, I look at Carolina, same thing. Like they just have a lot of players that fit generally what, what they're looking for, but then, you know, they've added more of a rush uh, aspect to their game and, but, but they still have that kind of heavy forecheck or heavy shooting and retrieving aspect, but, but they just, they don't overthink and they just go for the players that um, just basically objectively are the best options. Right? Well, but, but think about this, like, you know, you're talking about there about the organizational baggage and stuff. Like this is a team that over the past two years lost in game seven, right? And they lost two years ago to the Sharks and they had upset the, the Flames the year before and it was a step into the right direction and they were really close and that Sharks team was really good while healthy. So I don't think that was viewed as a disappointment. I would think it's fair to say despite all of their injuries last year and having to rely on Michael Hutchinson and Nett, it was disappointing that they didn't make it to the conference final and they lost to the Stars in game seven. That was an upset. And I think there would have been a lot of organizations in this league that this past summer looked at that and said, Oh, we got to get, we got to get tougher here. We got to, we got to go the other way. I know we're really skilled and we've had a lot of success, but for us to get over that hump, we need to bring in some more, more leadership and character here. And they certainly like, like Brendan Saad is had had success in the league is that type of player, but he's also skilled. And so for them, like the biggest adjustment they made was we're going to flip Nikita Zadorov, who you'd think is a player type of player that profiles the way they'd want more of those guys for Brandon Saad. And then they replace Zadorov with Devon Taves and basically add even more skill to their lineup. And it seems very obvious to do so, but I do wonder how many teams actually would have taken that route as opposed to letting a game seven defeat kind of cloud their judgment and make them make some sort of rash, unfortunate decisions. Okay, so, so here's a fun little hypothetical for you. Okay, so in March of 2017, um, that was when Kyle Dubas first reached out to me about potentially going to Toronto, working together, and, and so on and so forth. So we had some initial discussions then, and then for about three or four months, he went radio silent. And if you remember back then, there were some rumors about him potentially uh, taking over Colorado. 
right? There, there yep. were some rumors there. That, yep. Yep. And so like recently I was thinking about, and I wonder, gee, like, I wonder if in a parallel universe, Kyle goes to Colorado and whether they'd be better off or worse off or, or just different. And, and for me, that's fascinating. Like I have no answers on that front, but, but that's just, I don't know. Like, like, I don't know how that, that could have turned out. I love how it was a relevant anecdote, but also how does this affect the Leafs? I love how you, you spun it in that angle, true to form, while you're wearing a Toronto Maple Leafs development shirt. That was very classic. Nicely done. Yeah, thank you. That, that, um, <laughs> that's I, I, what I will, a skilled podcasting professional would uh, pick up on, right? There, there we go. That was a, that was a little nod for, for our Leafs fans listening out there. Um, yeah. No, but you know, like in, in terms of... Um, sort of lessons or I guess what we can learn from, from the success they've had so far in terms of getting these players. Like one thing is they did a really good job of, I'm not sure how much of this was, was the analytics involvement and how much of it was the pro scouting and how I'm sure those, all of that involved. Um, but over the past handful of years, how many times have they identified a player that either was an RFA that that team couldn't afford on their next contract or a player who um, you know, just for whatever reason, flamed out of their past stop was obviously very talented, but it just didn't work out. Like they, they identified and went and traded for Andre Burakovsky as an RFA. And then they basically gave up just a couple picks to do so. And then they signed him and he's an awesome second liner for them. They did so with Philip Grubauer when, when the Capitals couldn't afford him on his next contract. They obviously did it most recently with Devon Taves. And the, the reason they were able to do so was because they maintained financial flexibility and had a lot of draft picks to do so. And I think that is the big learning. Like, obviously you need, they got a bit lucky with how the Matt Duchesne return wound up working out in terms of the assets they got. They got a bit lucky in terms of the contract that they had signed Nathan McKinnon to when his shooting percentage was at 7%. And then he wound up leveling up and becoming one of the best three players in the world. Like there's, you need to get lucky along the way, but there is a lot of smart team building practices as well that we can sort of trace back to as the reason why they got a lot of these players. Well, uh, how I would say this is, is that maybe they got a l- little bit lucky on, on the front end of their, of their cycle. Right. Uh, then they, they, they built on it with good, uh, good decisions or good process. And now they need to get a little bit lucky to get over the hump and then maybe win a cup or, or more than one cup. So, uh, you know, it's like this, some of the luck that they had in the beginning, I, I think they're they're hoping to, to get some more of that now because honestly, there's a lot of good teams in the league and, and not everybody gets to win the cup. And right. maybe if they can keep their window open for as many years as possible, then they'll get one or two or, or maybe more than that. But um, who knows? Well, as we saw with last year, yeah, <laughs> health is probably the biggest uh, determining factor in terms of uh, postseason success. Uh, was there anything else on on the avalanche that we wanted to touch on while we we're, while we we're still here on this call. Well, I, I, I'm just going to shout out my buddy, Eric and uh, David Wood over there. And, and, and Dawson Dob- doing- Spriggins as well. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah it's a good staff. Um, all right, man. Well, this was a blast. Uh, I'm glad we got to do this. Do you want to plug some stuff? Where can people check you out? Um, do you want to tell them a little bit about your, uh, your book or whatever they can do to help support the Jack Han brand? <laughs> So uh, once again, uh, best place to, to keep up with what I'm doing is on Twitter, uh, J-H-A-N-H-K-Y. And then once you're on my Twitter, you can sign up for my free newsletter where I, where I talk about tactics and player development and a bunch of other 
hockey centric stuff. And then if you like those, then, uh, uh, buy one of my eBooks. That's it. What are you, what are you working on these days? What are you watching? You're just watching the Leafs have series. Uh, some, and then maybe a couple of other series. I, I I'm also working with some pro players, so I'm, I'm helping them put together some off season plans and kind of trying to plug their skill set into patterns that they can use, uh, whenever they start playing again. You know, I've got some guys in Europe, some NHL prospects, uh, even some minor hockey players in my area. So that's been really interesting to just be able to coach players one-on-one, whether it's remotely. And I'm hoping to be able to, to get back on the ice at some point. Um, but, but it's, it's really, it's different because a lot of players, they feel like they're, they're regular team coaches. They don't really have the time or maybe, you know, the, the perspective necessary to help them maximize their potential. And that's really why I come in. And, and it's been really rewarding to, to already see some guys be able to move up leagues next year or to get on track to maybe make the NHL or get back to the NHL and, or, uh, or anything, uh, anything along those lines. Cool, man. Well, be well. Uh, looking forward to seeing what you uh, what you churn out next. It feels like you're putting out a book every other day here, so I'm curious to see what, what what's coming next. But uh, this is a blast, and we'll have to do this again sometime in the postseason. Let's uh, l- let's pick a team or a series to just keep our eyes on and, and watch some tape of, and then we can kind of break down what they're doing right and wrong. Sounds great. All right, cheers, Bob. All right, cheers. All right, that's going to be it for today's episode of the Hockey PDO Cast. Hopefully, you enjoyed my conversation and deep dive on the Colorado Avalanche with Jack Hahn. We will have plenty more playoff content coming here soon. We're going to do a round one recap, round two preview. And as the number of series start to uh, dwindle and the number of teams left to discuss, uh, decrease, we'll be able to really hone in on them more, like we did here with the Avalanche and deep dive sort of what's going right and wrong and and their systems and all that good stuff. So plenty more to come your way. Uh, Hopefully uh, you enjoy this one. And and if you did, uh, please consider helping us out by leaving a quick little rating interview. It's really easy to do. Only takes a minute of your time. You can just leave the five stars. If you are feeling extra generous and have some free time in your hands, you can leave us an actual review there and let people know either what you enjoy about the PDO cast or why you recommend others check it out if they haven't done so yet. A lot of you have done that already and every single one of them is greatly appreciated and I really thank you for doing so and for helping the show out and if you've been holding out and still haven't done so yet but have been meaning to, uh, please consider doing so at some point here uh, because it helps the show a lot. So that is going to be it for today's show. We're going to be back soon with another And thanks for listening. Enjoy the playoffs. And until then. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO Cast.